Hi guys, and welcome to Max Talks AI. Uh, today's episode is a book review, and it's a review of one of the books I've read quite recently. And it's a book by Peter Nowak called Humans 3.0, The Upgrading of the Species. It kind of looks like this. Firstly, kind of the look and feel of it. It's, um, as you can see, it's white. It has some blue writing that says Humans 3.0. Um, also has a bald man. Uh, or a woman, which is quite cool, with kind of a Matrix-esque hole in the neck to to plug into stuff or or any any other activity, really. The review is going to be split chapter by chapter, and um, I think some chapters are more important than the others, so that I will review them more in depth and I can skip over the rest, etc., etc. I mean, it's my show, so I kind of do it how I want. Um, also, I'm going to be mixing it up with... Uh, some of my personal opinions. Uh, so yeah, I'm not an expert. I am not even kind of averagely knowledgeable and about artificial intelligence by any stretch of imagination. Uh, but I am interested in it, and I have read some stuff about it, and maybe my insights are relatable, at least to us simple people, not geniuses like the likes of Peter Nowak and all those other dudes. So just to start kind of chapter by chapter breakdown, in the introductory one, Peter throws an idea at us that is called singularity, and we're kind of... Boom, you know, what the hell is this? In simple terms, singularity is a hypothesis that says that when uh, the general artificial intelligence is invented, uh, machines are going to be able to design better machines or software is going to be able to write better software and this sort of infinite upgrade is going to cause uh, artificial intelligence very quickly surpassing human intelligence and there's kind of kind of this like intelligence explosion party where it's just kind of all over the place and no one really knows what's going to happen with it so that's singularity i think uh, in the book it's defined as ultra intelligent machine that can design even better machines, that's going to lead to intelligence explosion and could be the last invention ever made. So what I like about Peter is that he kind of throws out this idea, right, of singularity and that it can be really bad for us, but then he talks about it being just another evolutionary step, right? So he brings a very positive look at it and he says, all right, we've had agricultural revolution, we've had industrial rev revolution, and this is a another revolution that is artificial intelligence boom. And um, that's basically there can be a creation of technological superpower and the total intelligence is basically inevitable as the things stand. In the introductory chapter, he kind of talks about that, and he talks a bit about Moore's Law, and you can see the references to Moore's Law uh, throughout the book, sort of this exponential rate of improvement and development. So the next chapter in the book, basically the first one is economics. Um, I think, actually, let me just find what is the exact name of the chapter. Yeah, so kind of, um, I forgot to say, the chapters are... The chapters have very humorous names, all right? I don't really understand all of them. Uh, but, say, economics one is, is called uh, Economics, Widgets Are Like the Avengers. And then, kind of, if you if you read it, uh, kind of in depth, uh, 
then you will understand the jokes behind all those chapters and they actually do make sense. So economics and AI uh, and the interlink of those is being thrown around quite a bit. I am sure you have seen in the news um, kind of ideas of productivity and artificial intelligence, inequality and artificial intelligence, and what AI is going to mean for the existing economic models. So he is talking quite a bit about that, and um, he takes, again, a very positive angle, which I like, because it seems like everyone is just defaulting into negativity um, these days, and that can be quite frustrating. So Peter takes a positive angle, and he's talking about growth, and basically bringing technology and growth together. And he gives a quote um, of Bill Gates, who says that there will be no poor countries by 2035. And I think that's I think that's really inspirational, and I think that's really exciting. This idea, you know, obviously we have problems, and you know, in developed world we have problems, in developing world we have problems. Um, but the bottom line is, the world on average um, is becoming more prosperous. You know, and it's very difficult to argue with this data. Now, the inequality issue is going to be addressed um, later, but generally talking about poverty. Uh, extreme poverty is declining rapidly, right? And uh, he gives a bunch of statistics about that, but I don't think anyone is really willing to argue this point. Uh, and surely there would be a quite a bold claim to try to do so. So, that being said, um, as I said before, although the average level of, of wealth is basically growing, the unequal distribution of income or the level of inequality within sort of say a country or a group of people is also growing so that if you take kind of bottom five percent and top five percent both are richer but now top five percent is disproportionately richer than the bottom five percent still so that if you kind of not look in absolute terms but you look in comparison then the gap is widening and widening and widening but he, Peter gives this, um, it's basically called uh, Kuznets Curve, and those who have done economics would have remembered it. Also, those who have read uh, Piketty and Capital in the 21st Century would, uh, would know what I'm talking about here. And actually, I think it would make sense if I just drew it on the board. I'm sorry for those who are listening. So, as you can hopefully see on the whiteboard, um, the y-axis is inequality, whereas the x-axis is um, industrialization. And um, what is what Kuznets and then what Kuznets argued and Piketty seconded and now Peter kind of thirded um, is that the relationship between the two, inequality and industrialization, is an inverse U curve. So just to kind of um, dig into this, I think it would make sense to. Look what is said in the book here. Uh, so, Kuznets curve, coined by Harvard economist Simon Kuznets in the mid-20th century, holds that inequality in the shape of an upside-down U ties to industrialization. During a country's early modernizing stages, inequality rises as farmers leave their land for higher-earning factory jobs in the city, creating an income gulf with those who stay behind. But as more people get better educations, they demand more equitable income redistribution from their government, which ultimately leads to a decline in inequality. 
That demand can take the form of organized opposition and even revolt. The same force gave birth to communism in the 19th century and unionization in America in the early 20th. Then he starts talking about the power of people to cooperate. So he says, as human beings, we prefer, and then he gives an example of Prisoner's Dilemma, and he also references the Dark Knight, uh, the Joker situation, if you remember, with those two ships, right? Uh, so Joker give, gave Batman a little puzzle to solve. There are two ships, and then every ship can blow another one um, up at any point, and every ship kind of has people struggling with the decision whether to blow up another ship, knowing that it might be done to them by another ship, or just kind of leave it, and then both ships are blown up at some point. I think I think that's the... I haven't watched it for a while, I'm actually a Marvel fan, uh, but either way, I like the reference to popular culture. So people cooperate, right? That's the bottom line. We like cooperation, we like to be interdependent, and uh, Peter goes into uh, quite a depth to explain why that is the case and um, how it's shown in the real world. So he's saying that the overall path, right, of um, of our economy, the overall path of development is um, still greater economic equality. Now moving on to chapter three, which is health. Right, and I'm just going to go through it briefly. Um, again, quite a positive attitude, you know, we are doing amazing progress and we are really curing um, some of the diseases that used to be uncurable, like progress in curing HIV and AIDS and also some form of cancer are not basically a death sentence, you know, you can fight it and you can go into remission and everything can be great. Uh, so he's saying that we do live longer, right, on average, we do live longer. But the question is whether we live better. And this is when, uh, for the first time in the book, uh, I think he goes into this whole idea of um, apps, devices, social media, and how it impacts uh, us as human beings. So that I, I feel like just this book compared to some of the other more geeky AI books, AI-related books, rather, uh, it's talking about artificial intelligence on one side and a very extreme example which is singularity and it's talking about uh, social media technology which is not quite that but is kind of in the same spectrum the book is is called humans 3.0 the upgrade of the species so it's not all about ai so yeah so completely fair enough uh then he is talking about monitoring apps and some of the statistics whether that actually does um give health benefits or not so you can go and check it out in your own time uh chapter four uh is a discussion involving jobs right jobs and um not as much ai as robotization right robotization is an idea that you know robots will basically do our jobs uh kind of self-explanatory and I love the I love the concept here. He's talking about when we think about robots replacing humans as certain jobs, we're thinking of the jobs that are involving three Ds. And three Ds are jobs that are dull, dirty and dangerous. Right? I think it's a it's a great way to look at it, and I will definitely remember that. Dull, dirty, dangerous. Uh so for example he gives an example of a robot that is a toilet cleaner, 
right? And that, that can be quite, quite useful indeed. Uh, to bring it back, back a notch, uh, the idea behind any major shift in the way jobs are located or in the way, in the way jobs are being undertaken and the economical perspective of work and productivity is to achieve progress, you know, in history. There was either more workers so that you can add, um, you know, human capital to a certain project and then you would drive productivity, or there is technology, right? So that he was talking about Great Depression and how the route out of that economic slump was pretty much... Um, you know, technology rather than adding more workers into an enterprise, um, right? So I want to give a quote here, and um, he actually, Peter is quoting uh, McAfee and Brian Yulfson, Brian Yulfson, uh, quoting the book Race Against the Machine, uh, right, where the authors say that pace at which uh, machines are replacing human jobs are faster than the new jobs for the humans being created. So sort of um, there is robotization, it's real, you know, you can think classic example from business schools and assembly line, you know, used to be 10 people, now it's one person just controlling the assembly line, everything else is done by the robots. Um, quite, quite simple here, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But the idea is that we are doing that replacing the humans faster than we are creating new jobs for those humans who are being replaced. Also a very popular debate and also very, um, I don't like the fear mongering uh, that uh, media, that's media though, I don't even want to talk about it, like media will always be on the negative side of everything that is happening, literally so. Yeah, let's let's not jump jump into that. I don't like how media takes on technology and AI mostly, I think it's... Uh, it's really, it's really upsetting that some people will take that at face value and not inquire about the possibilities and just kind of start thinking about challenges and how they're going to lose their jobs. We will talk about that, <laughs> we'll talk about that later, let's not uh, make it a, a one-hour discussion. So yeah, obviously there is a problem, uh, right, but it's the problem that can be solved. Um, you know, there is a bunch of governments now are thinking about uh, training people sort of for to be ready for the skills that are going to be needed in the future, right? So it's not all going to be programmers, but um, there's going to be a lot of roles around operating machines, gathering feedback from machines and just improving um, the ways robots are doing the the jobs, you know, that used to be done by human beings. Now, the next chapter I'm going to talk about is the relationships chapter. Um, its exact name is Relationships, Superficial Degrees of Kevin Bacon. And in there, right in the beginning of the chapter, Peter Nowak throws this idea at you um, of a little emperor syndrome. It's page 99. I'm just going to go a bit... Um, in depth with it because I love the way it's presented and the way it's being discussed. So China's one-child policy has become famous, something notorious, for producing little emperor syndrome, the spoiling of children to the point where they become whiny, entitled brats. 
parents are becoming increasingly well-off and don't have a multitude of children to support. Many find themselves with a lot of disposable income. The children who don't have siblings want it all. An element of this development has trickled over in uh, iconic fashion to the West, where social media uses regularly joke where social media users regularly joke about their own first-world problems. A hilarious repository of these has sprung up on websites such as firstworldproblems.com, where people share their complaints like, I have to get dressed so that I don't look too lazy when I go out to pay the gardener, and I want to enjoy my beer in the garden, but the Wi-Fi doesn't work out there. Plenty of us in the West already suffer from a kind of collective little emperor syndrome. Now, I can really resonate with this. Um, I am definitely complaining about stuff that I really have no right to complain about and I feel horrible about it right now that I think about yeah multiple things just today well yeah I guess I guess we all suffer from the little emperor syndrome a bit and it is one of the inevitable outcomes of the abundance of wealth that we have created uh, in in the west at least and certainly other countries are catching up uh, and, you know, obviously there are different social layers and I feel like there are different degrees of those first world problems. But I think as long as sort of we are aware of them, uh, we are being grateful enough to be in the position to, you know, have some of the luxuries of life really that others don't have. And we are trying to, you know, give back to the community and then eventually kind of for the whole world to catch up with us. Um, I think I think we we can indulge into those complaints every now and then um, just just because they're funny. But again, not losing sense of perspective and, you know, how lucky we are and how grateful we should be. On uh, page 104, uh, Peter is talking about social isolation. And I could really, I wouldn't say I could relate, but I could really see how that can happen. Uh, the conversation involved social media um, and basically is it bringing us closer together or is it making people feel lonely, isolated, depressed, etc., etc.? Um, so I think maybe for the first time in the book, Peter was a bit more negative about this, and he was inclining into saying that um, social media is great. Uh, we have as as many friends as ever, according to Facebook and all those other apps, obviously. Uh, but in terms of the depth of connections, we are we are not where we used to be even. And um, there is statistics, I can't remember the exact numbers, and I can't really find it right now, but it's talking about um, the number of people that uh, other people are willing to share sort of their secrets with and have deep conversations with, and the number of people has become smaller. So that although the, you know, the overarching number of friends is, is bigger, the number of people you can share stuff with has, has shrunk. And uh, for, for many of social media users, it has shrunk down to their family only, uh, which is something I think that is quite interesting and something we should think about. Uh, uh, then in the relationships chapter, Peter is talking about uh, obviously online dating and the rise of it. And I am completely blown away by how popular online dating is and how normal it is. You know, back in the day, like I remember when some of those first apps came out, uh, if you are looking for a partner online, you are back in the day, you know, a couple, you know, I'm not, I'm not that old, but even five years ago, if you're looking for someone online, then you are either on the shy side 
or you're just a bit weird, sort of a bit pervy. That that was the vibe back then. Now it's the most normal thing that um, ever happened to a human being, it feels. Um, myself, I'm in a happy relationship. I didn't find my girlfriend online, but I really started to see the value of online dating. I've started to see people really finding someone that is amazing for them online. So really, anywhere you can find a person to love, anywhere you can find uh, a partner, like go for it. I think I think it's amazing. I think it's just another medium. Uh, so we shouldn't really overthink this. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we should be thinking about it to some extent. And Peter Novak certainly is. And he, <laughs> very, very quickly from a sort of conversation about love and meeting people online, he switched to uh, people cheating online. Uh, and I, I, I really think that um, it is much easier to be involved in an affair uh, of a small gravity, right? So what I, what I mean by this is with um, social media, it's quite easy, for example, to send um, a nude to someone or to receive a nude, which I would consider... Um, and a fan, I'm sure, I'm sure many others would too. Uh, but he um, is also, he's also quoting Chris Rock, I think. And uh, I love that quote. It's, he, Chris Rock basically said, man's as faithful as his options, right? Uh, and I think it's, it's obviously Chris Rock is a comedian and it's funny, but I think there is some, there is some truth to that. And also, I think just talking about fidelity, um, I think when you don't have options, it's easier, you know, I'm just going to be blunt here. When you, you know, for like movie stars and like whatever, musicians, blah, 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 I think staying faithful is definitely harder than for someone who kind of doesn't really get approached or doesn't really get too many smiles or too many looks. I wouldn't say that one is more justifiable than the other, but I think that that is certainly the case. And, you know, I'm not really scared to say it just because I believe it to be true. Uh, then Peter was also talking about pornification, and uh, page one one nine I have here. Let's see, let's see what I meant by it. Page one one nine, important it says. So, I have a sentence underlined here. Connectivity left us seduced by the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. It left us seduced with connection instead of conversation. Um, I believe the conversation here is about texting versus talking versus talking face to face, right? And um, a lot of the context for it was uh, when you text, right, um, you can reply in your own time so that when the conversation gets heated, you can kind of put down the phone, go for a week, go for a smoke, whatever, whatever, go catch some air, come back and reply. Uh, Before it used to be, you know, if it's a heated conversation on the phone, you know, you kind of hang up or you start swearing or this and that. Obviously, it can happen over text, but you can see how with text it's easier sometimes to have more detached conversations, which can which can help, certainly, but can also mean that some of that connectivity, some of that intimate connection can be sacrificed. So we have sacrificed conversation for the sake of connection so that we are connected. It's 24-7. We are exchanging everything all the time. However, some of those conversations, some of those, you know, DMCs, deep and meaningful conversations are um, not occurring as often as they did before. Now, I'm not 100% sure if I agree with it. I had many uh, profound conversations over text. I think it's another medium of talking. I don't like, for example, letters being glorified. 
like, I wrote a letter and I sent it to you and, oh my God, I'm so romantic. Like, this is so amazing. I went to such great, um, you know, like, effort expenditure to write this and pack it up and send it to you. Like, oh my God. I mean, it's it's cool. Yeah, letters are cool. But, like, I think it's the message that really counts. You know, if the message is profound and if the message is impactful, I think a voice note a call, I mean, obviously face-to-face, obviously a text can be can be just as good. And, um, you know, I'm sure people would disagree and maybe they're right, but this is just the way I view it. So next chapter is um, identity. He is talking about uh, governmental surveillance and um, privacy, right? Um, so surveillance to, to me, and um, when, I, when I did law, I did information technology law and we have covered uh snowden revelations and we have covered a bunch of revelations about the uk government and surveillance is very very real and uh we are being monitored quite heavily uh it is for the purposes of national security most of the time but it is obviously a very difficult balance and much more educated people are talking about it and i'm sure you can find um books and podcasts and videos about it but it's basically a debate between uh public security and individual privacy you know where do you draw the line how much can you monitor how much are people how much of their privacy are people willing to give up uh, to be safe and obviously government being in quite a strong bargaining position using the fear factor of you know there's terrorism there is this there is that um, it's quite easy to uh, make people scared and it's quite easy to uh, make them give up some of their privacy for that security and uh, Peter is talking about it quite extensively, and he's also talking about uh, big corporates collecting information and doing God knows what with it. Um, I have certainly had an experience of uh, an extreme uh, targeted ads at the stuff that I've been talking about in my emails and in my private conversations, then basically being sold by Google to corporations, repackaged and then targeted back at me. I didn't buy anything of that. So you just annoyed me uh, going into my private stuff and I'm not going to buy uh, any of your products. Uh, I'm not going to name organizations here because I don't want to get into trouble. But Now, chapter 8, belief, is the one I'm going to discuss next. And I found it quite interesting. I used to be an Orthodox Christian uh, growing up in Ukraine. Uh, not a crazy believer, as in crazy, but by crazy I mean not a very avid believer. I wouldn't go to the church every week, but... Uh, I believed, and I still have a cross over here, so I I kind of have it uh, as a hedge against the possibility of God existing, so that I can still be in a more favorable position than someone who lived my style but didn't wear the cross. But uh, I'm not going to discuss my style, and the, my lifestyle on this on this video. So the idea is, as the prosperity grows, religion goes down right? It's not true for every nation, obviously an outlier is America, but generally, even in Europe, as the prosperity goes up, the religiousness of the masses goes down. And it is quite interesting, and it gives an example of Estonia, that is uh, the world's least religious country, that is a fun fact of the day, where only 16% of population believe that religion is important. Chapter 9 of the book, and um, the final chapter really before the conclusion, is... Uh, happiness and it's also i would say happiness along with every time you hear a discussion about artificial intelligence economic productivity 
it would kind of go go this way and I'm, I'm going to give you a plan of almost any panel talk or a keynote about AI and economics. So AI causes a lot of growth. AI is going to lead to loads of productivity. Potentially AI is going to put us in a position when we will not need to work for living and we can just sort of grab the money produced by technology and sort of do whatever we want with it. And after that, the question usually that is being asked, asked and discussed is whether we're going to feel happy and whether we're going to feel fulfilled when that all comes into being. Right, so in chapter 9, Peter is talking about happiness being divided into two, short-term and long-term. And I'm just going to see how long is the passage here and whether I can, I can read it out to you. Page 155. Uh, also, he has a very interesting quote. Uh, here by David Lee Roth. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a yacht big enough to pull up right alongside it. Now, just as a, as a side note, the relationship between money and happiness, right? And it's been discussed quite a lot, but in case if you haven't heard, money and happiness have a positive correlation, uh, meaning more money, more happiness, up until a point of financial security and stability. And it's different for different countries and certainly can be different for different people. But it's in the UK, maybe around £60,000. In uh, the US, around $80,000. After that, there is no correlation between money and happiness. So that if you are thinking of achieving happiness that way, even if it is your goal, which I don't think it should be anyways, uh, that's obviously a bad idea. Money can't buy you happiness, and that is now sort of scientifically proven. So if we just move on, uh, Peter says here that happiness consists of at least two different concepts. One is a long-term feeling or sense of general satisfaction. And then he's talking about it being conscious or subconscious and a sort of fulfillment with yourself and your place in the world and sort of being uh, at balance and in harmony with the surroundings and your internal you, etc., etc., and the other flavor of happiness is more short-term. It comes in bursts and is generally more extreme than the long-term type. It happens when someone tells a funny joke, when you plunge down that incline on a roller coaster, when you orgasm or when you trip out on drugs. So, obviously, quite a list here. You can't do all of them at the same time. Hey, let me see. Funny joke, plunge down the incline on a roller coaster, orgasm trip on drugs actually you can do all of them at the same time uh but it is certainly not advisable and i would strongly suggest not to try it out <laughs> after after sort of outlining two um types of happiness uh, peter then goes into discussing how technology is influencing the two uh so that from myself i want to add that for the short-term happiness um certainly social media provides us Social media in its nature is addictive. Those likes, uh, even, you know, emails, old school kind of social media, I guess. Uh, likes, emails, friend requests, they're all cues for a brain to go like, aha, there's something new, what is it, let me see. And then you kind of want it more and more. Uh, so that's short-term happiness and that's my take on its interlink with social media. Uh, talking about long-term happiness, I would say a lot of people do see their identity from the work they do you know as in sort of when people are any small conversation a question of what you do comes very quickly what do you do for a living and then you say i kind of do this and this and then for the person asking 
they build an image of you in their mind, like, okay, this is what he does, or he or she, this is what he or she does for a living, and sort of this is what they represent, kind of thing. And a lot of people uh, see themselves um, and assess themselves by the number of responsibilities they take. Um, and this is uh, quite heavily discussed in Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. Uh, there he talks about uh, mostly men, because mo- some of the most of his research, I think, for that book is done uh, for um, male part of population. And he's talking about the necessity of taking on responsibility and taking on more responsibility for a man to be fulfilled, right, in long term. I guess, obviously, it's debatable, and obviously it's debatable to whether uh, there is a difference between men and women. I don't know myself, um, but this is what I've read. Uh, right, it's Jordan Peterson's book, uh, by the way. But back to Peter Nowak's one. Um, after discussing happiness, sort of in that sense, he's talking about neuroplasticity and addiction. And I quite like the definition of addiction here because I feel like it's quite a mysterious uh, idea, quite a mysterious term that we don't quite know how to interpret. You know, saying I'm addicted to something. That kind of means that you do it over and over. You prefer not to do it, but you still do it because you can't stop. Right. And that can be smoking, that can be checking your phone, etc., etc. And uh, Peter talks about neuroplasticity being at the heart of addictiveness. So addiction happens because neural pathways become more inflexible through prolonged indulgence. So that in your brain, when you go pick up a cigarette, smoke, you know, put, put it out, and then pick up a cigarette, smoke, put it out, that becomes so engraved in this neuroplastic, n- neurological rather, pattern um, that it, it becomes inflexible to change. So you just kind of keep doing it. Next idea he's talking about is that only half of happiness is internalized, right? So he's saying half of it is internal, half of it depends on the outside world. Now, that's um, a, probably, the statement probably has some truth to it, but I don't agree with the fact that, you know, it's firstly that it's a half and half split, and then I don't agree with the fact that you cannot internally control your perception of what's happening in the outside world. I uh, practice, well, I aspire to practice Stoicism, which is, um, for those of you who don't know, which it's, it's a philosophy that basically says that things that happen on the outside, things that happen to you, let them happen. What you're responsible for is your reaction to those things, right? So it's, you can be in control of your mental state by not letting those externals control you, right? Not letting them jerk you around and sort of understanding that you are in control of your perception. So I don't quite agree that half of happiness is internalized. I don't think it has been discussed in great depth. It wasn't a major point in the book, so no problem about that. Uh, He's also talking about social capital being important for happiness, uh, meaning relationships, friendships, romantic... Uh, involvements, etc. And then gives an example of Scandinavia, which, you know, only a lazy person would give talking about happiness. Uh, Actually, the happiest country is Costa Rica by happiness index. That's what it says in the book. I think recently it's been replaced by Norway or a a country from that region. But uh, Peter discusses Denmark into great depth. And um, I think one of the main takeaways for me would be that 
happiness of a you know a nation as a whole is is quite tied into an idea of trust, right? How much do you trust the government? How much do you trust your neighbor? Um, not worrying about those things and not being angry, for example, it's, you know, government is, you know, screwing you over or the bank is screwing you over. Denmark has a very high trust index that I think uh, causes a very high happiness index. And uh, I think we definitely, uh, you know, here in the UK, in my home country in Ukraine, for sure, no one trusts anyone in there. But uh, in any country, really, we can look at Denmark and be like, okay, trust is quite important. It's important relationships. It's important to build a well-functioning nation too. Now, the last chapter and sort of the conclusion uh, of the book is, goes, Marx was right, kind of, <laughs> right? Uh, I think that's really funny. And I think that's also really smart. Uh, so Marx actually have his book here. Obviously extremely famous i haven't read it all uh but i will one day i promise you i will <laughs> it's called capital by karl marx um obviously extremely heavy read unlike humans 3.0 uh but it's you know obviously marx is a communist leader and is a used to well was you know obviously he's dead now uh rest in peace uh but he was a uh, one of the major proponents of communism and one of the major thought leaders um, in communist world, really. So Marx was right basically means that communism is the best regime for a country to exist when the technology hits the fan for real, <laughs> right? That's a layman's explanation of what the last chapter means. Uh, before going into that, Peter is talking about some of the countries that are becoming more prosperous, you know, obviously developing countries and, um, you know, underdeveloped countries are all growing at massive, massive, massive rate. And they are obviously buying cars, they're building plants, they are kind of getting more and more industrialized and that takes a negative toll on the environment that the West has already screwed up. So that kind of puts us in this weird situation of um, we have uh, screwed up the environment before you became developed and now that you want to become developed we won't let you do it uh, because then we will all die eventually because the planet cannot sustain um, this level of damage. Uh, obviously there is Paris Convention we're trying to sort it out. I think one of uh, very good solution to it is developed countries uh, to pay to developing countries for basically the opportunities that they're not using uh, in terms of building factories and kind of polluting the environment. But it's, again, it's a very complicated question. Maybe I'll do a video on it. Uh, maybe not. Uh, but I think the main idea uh, that says Marx was right, that is, uh, when artificial intelligence develops enough, we will be able to uh, produce wealth and there's going to be abundance of wealth that we have never had. And uh, the uh, idea of a job and the idea of people exchanging hours for money uh, will start to fade slowly. So that it will make sense, right, to have a communal distribution of income, borderline universal basic income for those who are aware of the term and the, the conversation, so yes, communism is the way forward, according to um, Peter Nowak, but with a little caveat. Uh, he says that Marx was right, but not 
uh, in a sense that communism can, could be forced, right? So that this idea of everyone grabbing a piece of the community-owned, uh, you know, basically bucket of money or wealth or houses or cars or any items... This idea cannot be just imposed on a nation or on a world that is not ready for it, right? So we have to kind of organically come to it. And uh, Peter Nowak believes this is what we're doing. I kind of agree. Uh, but again, there are, there are too many layers and there is uh, definitely not enough time. So this was the review of Peter Nowak's book, Humans 3.0, The Upgrade of the Species. Uh, very, very, very good read. A very simple read but not simplistic, which is quite important. It flows. Uh, he's obviously an amazing writer. It's written in a journalistic style, and I like the breakdown of the chapters because you know exactly what to expect from each one of those. Uh, and I think different people are going to resonate to different chapters on a different level, and that is cool. It's also okay to skip a chapter. Um, certainly give it a skim through or an in-depth read. I have it all like annotated in here, obviously, because I was going to do this review, but... Uh, you can read it, doesn't take too long to read, maybe two, three days, depends on, depends on your pace. So definitely do go check it out. Um, props to Peter Novak. Uh, more reviews to come. So thanks for listening. I love you guys. Ciao. Goodbye.